the Wildlife Observer Network. are part of the urban ecosystem. They have been, they are going to continue to be. There's there's no way to get rid of rats. Right. Um, and the the consequences of just distributing all of this poison for other wildlife, sometimes for pets, sometimes even for human children, is uh is that worth it? You are listening to Hello and welcome to the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tony Crosdale, with my man, Billy Brown, and our special guest, Christian Hunold. We've had you on before, Christian, and we're here to talk about one of your new papers, and I'm excited to hear about it. So why don't you uh, uh, give us a little background? Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so uh, a couple years ago, um, I started thinking about a sort of a trend I was seeing in urban wildlife management particularly in the Western United States, around predators, um, you know, coyotes, mountain lions, black bears to some extent, and cities in uh, Oregon, California, Colorado, were sort of, you know, for the past 10 or 15 years, have been revising their sort of wildlife management plans, indicating a movement toward not less conflict, but willingness to sort of acknowledge coexistence with mammalian predators, um, you know, of considerable size, and in some cases, potential actual sort of danger toward humans, right, and pets. And uh, as part of that, a, a sort of a movement toward less lethal forms of management, right? Where maybe 20 or 30 years ago, if you were a coyote and you showed up in San Francisco, right, the police would sort of quietly dispose of you throw the body in the bay or whatever, you know, and there weren't any coyotes. And so around the turn of the century, they made sort of a, a switch, right? They stopped doing that. Um, the city basically decided to stop killing animals for no reason other than their sort of presence in the city. And then, uh, you know, fairly quickly, uh, the predictable thing happens. There are more and more coyotes. And today they're sort of everywhere and they're pretty visible and, you know, pretty broadly sort of accepted. So anyway, so the, the, this sort of got me thinking, all right, we should look at some of these um, wildlife management plans, uh, municipal um, wildlife management plans, see to sort of what extent um, ideas of non-lethal management and mutual accommodation, coexistence, belonging, right, were sort of reflected in these plans, right? Could you sort of say that these plans reflect perhaps, um, you know, evidence of uh, multi-species urban planning or anything like that? And so, you know, I was talking to a student about this, and uh, as part of those discussions, we're like, well, yeah, okay, that seems to be going on with, you know, sort of the, the, the fuzzy, the sort of the majestic megafauna that sort of everybody claims to like, right, like mountain lions in Los Angeles or whatever. But what about rats? What about sort of unwanted urban animals um, that are often despised? There are also some, some real non-trivial health risks, perhaps, perhaps associated um, you know, kind of running around in your kitchen or, in, you know, in, in hospitals or sort of other areas where you might come in close contact with rats in ways that aren't probably very good. Anyway, so we, we said, okay, let's look at both of these things. Let's look at um, 
the predators, the charismatic animals, they're, you know, polarizing, but often politically a somewhat easy sell to people, you know, once you sort of overcome some initial resistance, you know, and the rats that are widely despised and unwanted. Um, and so, you know, the results of the paper are basically that the, you know, commensal rodents like rats do not benefit um, very much from this broader movement toward less lethal forms of managing urban wildlife, um, right? We continue to kill rats pretty much on a whim, you know, extermination campaigns kind of come and go. We use increasingly effective forms of poison, right? One of the problems with killing rats is that rats are, you know, intelligent, they're social animals. Uh, once they realize that um, uh, a, a bait um, that they're taking is poisoned, um, right? Sort of word gets out and the other rats start to avoid the poison. And so in come what are called second generation anticoagulant rodenticides that have been around for a decade. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a rodenticide scientist. I think they've been around for at least a decade though. Um, something we can probably check up on. What they do is they, they're slow acting. Um, so it's like a, it's a, it's a blood thinner, right? Like just like first generation anticoagulant rodenticides, but they're slow acting. They, they can take up to, uh, you know, many hours, maybe a day or two to actually um, kill the animal. Um, so the rats remain alive and mobile. And as they begin to sort of weaken, right, they slow down um, and they become easy prey for, for predators, um, you know, raptors, um, but, you know, foxes, coyotes, mountain lions, whatever, um, they become a very easy meal. And so, yeah, a lot of people point out that the existence of these and the use and the widespread use of these second generation anticoagulant rodenticides leads to a lot of secondary poisoning of um, other species, precisely the kinds of species that people like better. And so some cities in uh, California, maybe in the mid teens, five or six years ago, started um, imposing municipal bans on these, on the use of these poisons, you know, uh, where the municipal government wouldn't use them on city property, uh, or maybe a somewhat wider sales ban. Uh, and then in 2014, uh, California, the state of California, um, started to restrict um, the availability of these poisons to licensed exterminators and to farmers. So, um, ordinary consumers couldn't longer just buy them in the in stores. And then in 2020, as we were writing the paper, um, California passed a statewide ban um, on these second-generation anticoagulant poisons. Um, they can still be used in some uh, in some contexts, in sort of medical settings um, or food storage settings, um, uh, you know, sort of warehouses. Um, but the use is now highly restricted um, and will hopefully be phased out. You know, implementation always takes a while. So the question for us was then, what does this mean? Um, does this represent um, a meaningful step in the right direction toward, you know, coexistence with rats, perhaps? And uh, that did not turn out to be the case, um, right? All other ways of killing rats remain legal and widely practiced. Um, and again, the, the, what, what drove this um, in California is that, you know, of course, in California, you know, has um, uh, particularly threatened um, populations of mountain lions in the sort of greater Los Angeles area that people get a lot of publicity that people care about. Um, about 70% of 
California's wildlife um, is, docu is documented to have had some exposure to rodenticides. Um, and so the, the ban ultimately is sort of more of a response to preventing secondary poisonings uh, and doesn't sort of signal that people have a, a change of heart about how they feel about rats. Which I'm a little sad about. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, ultimately, um, you know, we do know that extermination campaigns of rats, particularly in sort of, you know, outdoor settings like a, you know, a, a corner park or, or wherever, are ultimately always temporary, right? You can, you can, you, yeah. can, you know, you can kill a bunch of rats pretty quickly and the colony sort of maybe goes away for a while, but unless you also drastically alter your sanitation practices, uh, removing food attractants, um, and so on, they'll, they'll just come back, right? Um, there's actually an interesting yeah. debate in this literature where people are, are, don't know and are trying to find out what is the result um, of these extermination campaigns that we're sort of creating really sickly rats, right? Because they're constantly sort of being poisoned. Or are we conceivably even creating sort of super rats, right? The rats that can sort of um, survive the poison, right? There's always somebody that whose body strong enough not die, or they're smart enough maybe to avoid the poison altogether. Uh, so to what extent um, is the widespread use of these and other poisons, you know, reshaping, you know, the rats that we have. You get what you select for, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. So this reminds me of a um, problem we had in my house here um, is with mice, not rats, but it's very similar. When the, uh, we first got word of the pandemic, um, my wife's brother um, has a friend who is either, I think is in the skull and bones group that like, you know, like weird, like club that like lots of presidents and stuff are in lots of military people. Yeah. And he got a text, you know, that said like, Hey, you know, things are going to get crazy with this pandemic and really like prepare. Right. And and we were like in Bermuda on like a baby moon and kind of like isolated and, and right while this is popping off. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to prepare for the worst and I'm going to like really stock up and get a lot of food and, and prepare it just in mm -hmm. case something happens. And I did, and I didn't invest in the uh, um, containment for it as, as well as I should have. And we ended up getting um, a bit of a mouse infestation mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it's, it's gone now. And now I have everything in like either it's, if it's not in cans, it's in these like air, air tight buckets with like, you know, oxygen absorbers and everything. Mm -hmm. But we had this hell of a time getting the, the mice out. And when we called the exterminator in, you know, the first thing they, you know, I mean, granted I went and like, you know, I did before I got a sermon, I tried to, you know, make sure there's nothing they could get into. And then it was surprising what they would find. They would eat like my, my wife had like these like eye masks that might have also like buckwheat inside them. They got into that. Like, like, um, you know, you don't, it's crazy what they would get into. But when exterminators came, the first thing, you know, he did was went around, plugged up every hole with like this metal mesh mm -hmm. and just gave us some tips. And like, he deployed some stuff. Um, and uh, I didn't want Rodetta side, but, but he, he reiterated over and over again. Yeah, the, the thing you got to do is make sure they can't get in your house, make sure you got nothing for them to eat. And, and it just seemed like that's, it just kind of really drove home the fact that that that's how you, you see, as we call, you know, it's these cultural controls. That's how you stop these things is, yeah. is with, 
you know, prevent it, you know, because it's sanitation and, and everybody wants to, you know, find a solution, you know, this lethal solution. I'm not opposed to lethal solutions by any means, but um, if they're not even effective, then what's the point? And I just think people are just stuck in this mindset that that's how you have to deal with it. Well, you're making me think about coyotes also, which are, um, which I think per Christian's research, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing, you know, Christian, let's wait a second. We never, we didn't say, Christian, who are you? What do you do? Uh, uh, environmental politics professor at Drexel University. Uh, so I'm a political scientist and political theorist by training. Um, but for the past maybe, oh, I don't know, about five to seven years maybe, I've been writing a lot about um, urban wildlife um, and uh, human-animal studies, I guess, critical animal studies is sort of the field. Yeah. So I look at um, human-animal relationships from a sort of social science, political theory lens. I'm sort of interested in multi-species spaces. Um, I write about multi-species cities. I'm interested in multi-species justice and planning. So the, the underlying question is sort of to what extent do our human practices, um, primarily political practices, but spatial practices to include concern for and consideration um, of non-human life forms. I, I just happened to have read two books by, uh, I guess, an environmental historian named Dan Flores. Mm -hmm. um, and one is, I think, Coyote America, and the other one's the American Serengeti. Yes. And um, both of them cover sort of the extermination campaigns against predators in I guess our whole continent, but like for yep. the United States and then but largely the West. Yep. And, you know, we sort of stop trying. Well, we're, we means something weirder because we're of two minds about it. Each of these cases, I guess that like, you know, the, the wolves have been on the endangered species list. Now they're not. And so people who have been wanting to exterminate them ever since we stopped trying to exterminate them a few decades ago after after decades and decades of, in, of very thoroughly exterminating them. Um, yes. uh, and some people are now like grab their guns and like, yeah, we get to exterminate them again. Um, but then, uh, you know, mountain lions, we've had like, you know, they were another predator that was subject of, a, you know, of up until, I don't know, like what, 60, 70 years ago, a very thorough extermination campaign. And then coyotes, the campaign continues. I mean, it's like, yeah. Well, it's an animal that in cities we've learned to love in some ways, but dude, if we're in Kansas in the countryside right now, you're doing coyote derbies where you're like competing mm -hmm. to see how many you can gun down at night. Like, right, right. There is, there is sort of an interesting movement around banning uh, these wildlife killing contests, right? Which, which mostly involve coyotes, foxes to some extent, um, but they're often around or some of the rattlesnakes. Are those rattlesnakes in your Zoom background? Yeah, we're doing a um, Zoom call. And, and Christian had a, right. a nice skyline. This is background. I'm like, all right, I'll put a pile of gestating timber rattlesnakes in there the you background. Go. Yeah. So, so, right, so the, so the vermin, right, are often sort yep. of... Varmints. <laughs> Varmints. <laughs> ...subject of these uh, wildlife killing contests. Um, which some states, but, a couple of states have banned recently, so there's some progress around that. And mountain lions, we should say, there's no longer sort of extermination campaigns, but they are a game animal and they are legally... They are legally killed by hunters in in the hundreds every year in the in the United States. So, but wait, 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 that, wait a second, you didn't mention my background. Yeah, your background um, is your basement man cave. Yeah, but it's my man cave is is you know is a shared space now, and 
we ha- I don't know if you it's can see. Man, baby but cave. There is a Barbie dream house in the background now. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you want a, like a truckload of Barbie crap, let me know, and I'll I'll rent a box truck and back it up to your 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 driveway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, unless you want to save it for your. You know, for Gilda, but yeah, no, no, sure. no. Gigi but, wants that out of the house the second Magnolia loses interest in Barbies. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll take it. But the but uh, yeah, yeah. But what I was getting at is, is that um, we're, we're you're talking about whether um, the the sort of the the grace that we've extended to predators in urban settings um, could, has been extended to rats, and no, not yet. Um, but I was just thinking, man, with the predators, we haven't even gotten it outside of the cities. I mean, this is. <clears throat> this is something that seems like a very, um, to me, like, I, I don't know, maybe this is taking us off the rat topic a little bit, but like, I mean, the, the we're banning sec- in, in California and some other places, I guess we're, we're, we're sharply regulating these, these anticoagulant poisons on the behalf or for the benefit of the predators. Yes. Um, but then it strikes me we got a big rural urban divide on that. I don't, I don't, I don't see like anybody in, in ranching, the ranching West, like extending much consideration even to the predators that the people of Portland or. No, I mean, I think overwhelmingly, I think that's true. Although there are some, I suppose, renegade ranchers here and there, um, particularly around coyotes who've found out through their own, I mean, it's basically guys who sort of started thinking, I'm just tired of shooting coyotes all the time, right? Um, yeah. It's, it's the sort of uh, the Aldo Leopold sort of um, epiphany, <laughs> right? You're sort of, you, you kill the wolf and at some point you're just kind of done with it. And you don't want to you're do referring it. to but, thinking like a mountain, an essay yes, that's been published yes. by Sam and it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's often not necessarily anything beyond that initially, right? You just kind of, this is pointless because the coyotes always come back. And there's some really interesting... Um, experiences as well as research um, that show that once you start leaving, so coyotes are, are sort of, they're not, they have small families typically, right? So it's, it's a, it's a, a breeding pair and they have um, a litter every year when things go well and, you know, some of the animals survive. Sometimes some of the younger animals stick around for a year or two, um, but they're relatively small family units, usually maybe up to, half a dozen animals or something like that. And then the young kind of move on eventually. Um, and what these farmers realized is that if they stop killing the coyotes, um, the coyotes figure out the rules. Um, so as long as the farmer also maybe invests in a couple of sheepdogs and sort of makes it clear that, um, you know, the lambs are sort of off limits. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't still occasionally kill a lamb. Um, but the sort of uh, depredation rates of lambs goes way down, apparently, on on ranches where the resident coyotes are not killed. Um, there seems to be cultural knowledge that the coyotes pass down um, to their offspring. And, of course, they're also not constantly replaced by new coyotes, um, you know, who sort of don't know the rules. There's evidence with Australian dingoes that shows exactly the same thing. Um, you know, sort of a similarly sized wild canid. Um, you know, they're sort of big enough to not really go after adult sheep very much, but lambs are certainly fair game. Um, it's the same idea. So, so even there, I mean, there's some 
you know, again, pockets of a more progressive or less lethal approach um, in, in at least some rural areas um, where farmers are not necessarily, it's not necessarily the sort of animal lovers or coyote lovers necessarily, but they're to some extent tired of killing them all the time. Um, and also it doesn't work, right? Not killing them is actually better. That's um, the part that baffles me about these. It's sort of something that if you dive into hunting culture at all, you see this expression all the time, predator control. That like that there's this yeah. idea that um, you're doing something to, to you're doing something beneficial by constantly killing coyotes, right. even though they seem to keep coming back in the in, in it's this yeah. is part of the subject of the book Coyote America by yes. Flores is like this is an animal that like it, we think of ever more gruesome and elaborate ways to kill them. I mean like like. I don't know. It's relatively old innovation by this point, but it still amazes me. You've got these spring powered baits that shoot cyanide into their mouths when they, when they bite mm-hmm. the baits. Um, and then like a succession of different poisons. you got killing them from helicopters. You got like, now you got, you know, rate using electric, you know, call like uh, sort of um, like through, I guess playing their, their, their calls to try to call them in and then shooting them. Right. Nothing seems to make a dent on their population levels. No, and it's no. like, at what point it's, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, dude, you're, it's clearly not working. Why are you still doing it? Um, I think because people like killing stuff. But, uh. <laughs> That's what I come back to, right? There's clearly a sort of joy that people take in, in doing that. Um, and the predator control sort of logic um, serves as a kind of cover, right? Or yeah. as a way to sort of make it make sense to yourself and, and others that doesn't involve having to admit they basically just like, yeah, killing stuff. So I guess well, then, I mean, then, killing like, stuff does work sometimes too. Well, sometimes, yeah. But with coyotes, it's particularly ineffective, it seems. Killing stuff was really effective if your goal was to get rid of wolves. Like they were, they were a species you could definitely exterminate. Yeah. Yes. Um, coyotes seem to be unexterminatable. Yeah, there's a, I, read, I remember a really gruesome uh, USDA study where they did an experiment, right? Um, they, they had a, they had, you know, it's a large enclosure, basically. Um, and you had, the, what the numbers they came up with, you had to, I mean, I recall them very precisely, but you had to kill something like 75% of the population for seven years in order to make a dent. Um, and the only way to do that is with landscape level poisoning, aerial gunning, right? None of, neither of those two options work around cities or suburbs, which partly explains perhaps why coyotes um, find those habitats so attractive, right? Because they're not, they're not persecuted systematically in quite the same way. I mean, there's maybe a little bit of coyote hunting in cities here and there. There's obviously, you know, traffic-related mortality and, and other sort of problems. Um, but the kind of systematic persecution that would actually result in the decline of coyote populations is is completely impractical in urban areas, right? Yeah. Hey, but to, Sorry, I realize I've taken us off on a long yes. tangent away from rats. I, I, I guess my thinking was before the tangent was that 100 years ago or even like 80 years ago, unthinkable that pretty close to unthinkable that we would embrace wolves today we have the urban coyote populations which are people are coming to terms with which again would have been like totally nuts like 
30 years ago, 20 mm-hmm. years ago, maybe. I wonder, do we think that rats and mice are, are somewhere in that continuum? I don't know. I mean, I mean, the case for it, right, you would argue to make the case that that's possible. More and more research by ethologists about the social and emotional intelligence of rats, right, who are um, clearly uh, social to extent, I mean, they're not sort of just fungible rats kind of running around, right, they have communities, they, they have empathy, you know, they'll, they'll try to rescue each other from drowning if they can, right, they share food. Um, so, so one attempt, right, one line of argument is to sort of say, look, they're just like us, right, they, are, they have qualities that are um, recognizably the qualities of a social mammal, um, and that is often the basis for making a case that, you know, for empathy, for, for greater empathy toward a species, right? Um, but I don't know. I mean, rats, rodents have such a squig factor for a lot of people, yeah. right? That, that, that require probably um, a level of, of sort of transformation, social transformation that's probably not really in the cards, right? For sort of the majority of people. Um, on the other, I think what I could imagine is sort of a, a the, what I usually sort of try to argue is that, look, rats are part of an urban ecosystem. They have been, they are going to continue to be, there's, there's no way to get rid of rats. Right. Um, and the, the consequences of just distributing all of this poison for other wildlife, sometimes for pets, sometimes even for human children, is, uh, is that worth it, right? To sort of keep doing something that really isn't working. And that is also in, in sort of outdoor context, just completely unnecessary, right? I mean, I, I'd be the first person to say, yeah, you don't want rats in your hospital. You don't want rats living in the walls of your house, right? And leaving right. feces in urine. And totally, that's, you know. I don't uh, want typhus. <laughs> I don't want, yeah. I mean, there are, there are transmittable diseases and there are real, you know, if you're in close proximity to, to rats in your house, you know, you don't want them in restaurant kitchens, et cetera, right? Yeah. Get no argument for me there. But these, uh, these sort of pointless campaigns, you know, when, when people panic about seeing rats in, in Logan Circle in Philadelphia or other public parks, and then, you know, somebody complains to city agency and then Parks and Rec or whoever um, distributes the bait boxes. You know. Vector control. What? Vector control. It's part of the health control. department. Yeah, the health yeah. department, I guess. Um, that just seems so important. That, I think, is something we can change, probably. And I hopefully, the, and, and to turn some people on to what we're talking about in terms of how the poison gets distributed. So, yeah, they, they vector control toss some poison down into the holes. But also, what we're talking about is if you're, next time you're walking around a city, look for these little black shoebox-sized boxes, like, tucked in against the wall, like, behind yeah. the landscaping. And that's what we're talking about. Tony, you had a story about finding these around the environmental center when you took over, right? Yeah, yeah. And I probably uh, removed, had them removed. It's it's crazy how it's just kind of like standard, right? It's like, oh, let's have these things, you know, these poison boxes. Yeah, just as a matter of course, you know. I mean, you, you walk, um, you know, anywhere in Philadelphia, if you along sort of apartment buildings or commercial, um, uh, real estate, uh, museums on the parkway. Yeah. They're off. They're, they're like black and they're tend to yeah. be like, I don't know, like a, a Pentagon, but one side is much longer, you know, like it's like a rectangle, but like kind of like, 
Yeah, they come in different shapes. Like some are a little bit um, uh, irregular in the way you're describing. Others sort of rectangular. Or they're about a foot and some look like yeah, some look like um, they they look like a plastic rock too. Yes, yeah, obvious. Right, yeah, yeah, they're sometimes sort of disguised to fit into the landscaping, right, to be less detectable. Um, it's maybe an obvious question, yeah. but one that I don't know about. You were just, we were talking a minute ago. Now I'd have to reference this because Michelle Nearbyer, who's been on the podcast a bunch of times when she worked for um, Integrated Pest Management uh, for the Penn State Extension, would talk about it. But we were talking about sort of the IPM approaches to rats, where you right. use multiple cultural, like changing our practices. Sanitation, um, exclusion, right. Exactly. And so um, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. But in other places, like if we go to, I don't travel enough to know this, but if I go to a city in, if I go to Tokyo or if I go to like Berlin or something, if I go to other cities, other places in the world where there are rats everywhere, you know, like, like right. how do other people, how do other cities handle rats? So, I mean, I guess, well, there's no, specific answer to that because cities are so different and it depends on where they are. Sure, but uh, yeah. Um, but in, in certainly in a place like uh, uh, Japan or Northern Europe, you would see more careful handling of households and commercial waste. Um, so, you know, one of the things that is not helping um, in a, a city like Philadelphia is the sort of you know, somewhat relaxed approach to uh, to trash disposal, right? There are behind Putting restaurants, you'll see, you'll see containers that are, I mean, they have a lid on them, but there's often a huge gap, right? They don't really fully close. Um, so certainly rats can get into those very easily. Or in tourist areas, you'll have um, public trash cans, but it's not, you know, maybe they're empty once a day, maybe a couple times a week. But, you know, if you wanted to cut down on rat populations, the first thing I would do um, is to just make sure that the trash is securely stored. But, you know, that would require changing regulations about, you know, what kinds of design of dumpster, trash cans is mandatory, who pays for all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, and you'd have to pay for more frequent uh, trash pickup, right, in, yeah. in public places, um, all of which is expensive, time-consuming. You know, it's just easier to put out a bunch of bait boxes and, you know, wait for some rats to die and then they become less visible and then the tourists stop complaining, right, about the residents. I mean, ultimately, the part of the argument that we're making in the paper, it's not the, it's not the, the real threat of contracting a disease that people are worried about or complained about. It's the visibility of the rats. Right. And so if that's the problem... And they're often visible in the places where they're the least of least problem like they're they're at least they're least threatening i mean yeah they're visible in a sort of in a public park right or in a public space where they're running maybe true to a trash can right that's not been emptied for a while um and you can sort of see them there that's not where you would get uh, typhus or whatever right that's not yeah. there's no way that that rat could communicate a disease to you you're, you're not going to get the fleas off that rat while it's running that's right. in that context yeah that seems um you know if you're not sleeping next to the trash can right the unhoused people um i wonder sometimes right people who sleep on uh places like logan circle um and and have rats crawling all over them all the time um i wonder to what extent right they, i mean their risk is obviously greater than than mine um which just walk by and maybe you know see the rat and not have it crawl all over me um, but anyway, so the, 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 right, the, the, the political problem for, for cities, you know, for, for tourist bureaus or 
elected officials is, is the rat's visibility, not the rat's presence per se. And so improved sanitation um, is, is usually the, you know, makes, makes the biggest difference in the visibility of rats. Yes, because they're they're above ground when they look for food waste, um, and uh, that is not particularly well controlled in Philadelphia. So we've got about five minutes to go. I wanted to just ask Tony on the bird side of things. This discussion reminds me about crows. I was trying to think of like what's a bird that is whose persecution is quite tolerated, mm-hmm. and like nothing to me sounds that way besides crows. I mean, like in cities, we we, we don't shoot them quite so much and like we get annoyed by them roosting in large numbers but like the rural setting certainly you can like there's in pa there's no closed season on crows and no limit i mean i don't know what what i could add more than that's probably the only thing i can think about you know you know morning doves are the most killed animal i think a terrestrial animal in the country um and i don't know if they're considered agricultural pests but i know doves and like like ear doves in argentina they kill them in the thousands and thousands and thousands like like into it like literally there's like like you go down there and just like people will hand you loaded shotguns and you just shoot and shoot and shoot all day because they're considered a huge um agricultural pest so i don't you know i know in other parts of the world just certainly birds are considered pests but not so much here the one thing though you know a lot of times we come back to cats but it's interesting how cats are taught are tolerated um by a lot of people and they and they actively feed them and then the feeding of them uh they're, they're talked about as being like a control of their defense is that the, they control rodents but yet their food attracts rodents is that anything that's come across when you're thinking about rats to you christian yeah i'm not a um i'm not sort of an expert on the on the cat side except it seems like the there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that cats actually kill a lot of rats um if they do, I mean, obviously they do kill rodents, but they tend to prey on on mice, um, on voles. I mean, they might catch maybe a juvenile rat every now and then, but rats don't really seem to be on the menu of cats a great deal. Rats are bruisers. This is the thing they yeah, think. Yeah. They, they, I have been bitten by rats a couple of times. It really hurts. And they're they're fast and they're smart. Yes. Um, and they're yeah. So they're, I mean, and classically, if you want to animal that kills lots of rats you get a terrier in any case um no to tony's or a red point tail. or a red yeah. tail hawk <laughs> that gets killed by the rodenticide but i, I we have to mention yeah. it but apparently it's the number one reason raptors are brought into um rehab centers is rodenticide poisoning yeah i mean anecdotally that seems to be the case in philly where the, the red-tailed hawks that inhabit the parkway and the sort of surrounding neighborhoods routinely um are made sick and die by by rat poison. Yeah, they prey on rats. They eat each each hawk probably eats um, two to two to three rats a day, and uh, when they do that in areas where there are a lot of bait boxes, um, and the the poison you know sort of builds up pretty quickly, they develop anemia. Um, they get weaker, obviously, when you're anemic, um, and they start flying into things and have fractures and eventually succumb to a, you know, an injury that's either cumulatively, there's a lot of sort of internal bleeding injuries or, or a major injury that just sort of kills them outright. Christian, if people want to read the paper, where is it? It is in a journal called um, Animals, um, and it is open access. Um, and it was published in 
give you the full reference in the journal Animals, um, volume 10 in October 2020. It's called Human Wildlife Coexistence in Urban Wildlife Management, Insights from Non-Lethal Predator Management and Rodenticide Bans. Synanthropic Organism. Awesome. So um, with that, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at wildlifecast. So Christian, thanks for coming on. Yes, thanks for having me, man. Yes. All right. Um, And and, and we'll revisit the whole bike birding and and photography thing soon, Christian. Yeah, that'll be fun. The the weather this winter has to stop at some point, right? Thanks, guys. All right, much love, buddy. Cheers. Bye. Bye.